0: Branding Badass and welcome to season 2 of Branding Matters. My guest today is Jay Baer, Hall of Fame keynote speaker, New York Times best-selling author of 6 books, and founder of 5 multi-million dollar companies. One of those companies is called Convince and Convert, an experienced, highly focused analysis and advisory firm that creates effective best-in-class digital marketing and customer experience strategies for the world's most iconic brands. Jay has been an advisor to more than 700 companies including Caterpillar, Nike, the United Nations and 36 of the Fortune 500. And he's a go-to source for the press including NPR, USA Today, Time, Real Simple, CBC and many, many more. I invited Jay to be a guest on my show today to talk about the customer experience I wanted to learn what role branding plays in that experience, and I was curious to get his point of view on why price is no longer the deciding factor in the minds of many consumers. Jay, I'm so excited to have you here today welcome to Branding Matters
1: I am delighted to be here thank you so much for having me this is going to be so much fun
0: you know it is going to be a lot of fun it's really great to have you here before we dive right in I heard a rumor that you are a certified tequila sommelier is that true
1: That is true. Yes. I am a level two certified tequila sommelier. I grew up in Arizona, went to school in Tucson, which is pretty near the border. So I I come by my tequila love, honestly. Uh, And it's just a very fascinating spirit. A lot of people had that one time in college, and that's the only time they ever had tequila, never again. But there's a lot more to it. It's actually very, very nuanced and uh, a lot of fun to study it.
0: So, how do you become a tequila sommelier?
1: So, there's a bunch of training programs. The one uh, I participated in is called the ITA International Tequila authority association, I don't remember. And and so there's all kinds of online modules and 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 courses that you gotta learn how different production methods and regions and all those kind of things. There's a level three certification, which I have not passed yet. Which requires you to go down to Mexico, uh, to Jalisco, where uh, tequila is typically made, and actually meet with the CRT, which is the governing body for tequila in Mexico, and take like a full test with the government. So uh, once we get out of uh, some pandemic times, I may have to go down there and, and pass that test too. So do
0: you like your tequila straight, or do you like it in a margarita? Do you like margaritas, or how do you like it?
1: I do like margaritas for sure, yeah. and I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not indiscriminate uh, about about my. <laughs> Uh, tequila consumption, but but I would tell you that that most people who study tequila and are really into it typically drink it neat, right? Just like in a yeah. in a glass, no ice, no nothing, just pour it and in, in sip it. But yes, I I love a good margarita. The challenge is I live in the Midwest. Um, I'm out west right now on vacation, which is great. But I live in the Midwest, and I got to tell you, the lime situation uh, in the Midwest is not ideal, right? Like it's just like we're a little citrus poor. Great corn, uh, but. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's different, like limes in California, Florida, Arizona, even Texas, a little different than limes in the Midwest.
0: You know, it's funny that you say that because I was in San Diego a couple of years now and we, have you been to San Diego? Yes. So we went to the old town. I don't know if you've been to the old town of San Diego and we went and we did this tequila tasting. So I like margaritas anyway, and we went and we did tequila shots with orange and cinnamon. So instead yes. of lime, we did it with an orange. And so that's what I was going to say. We said no lime. But I don't know if you've ever done it with cinnamon and orange. Yeah, very
1: traditional, especially in Mexico City. Um, that's that's a very traditional way to do it. And, and the best tequila store, retail store in the U.S. is actually in Old Town San Diego. It's called Old Town Tequila. And, and that is worth a pilgrimage for sure. They also mm-hmm. ship to most states as well. So you can get a lot of their stuff online.
0: People are going to think this is a show about tequila. <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? Let's do a about well, well I tell you though, here's the thing. Talk about a business category that is almost entirely dominated by branding. And tequila is one of them, right? Like the growth of the celebrity tequilas and, and all of that, like, you know, most of the celebrity tequilas are terrible, terrible, bad. But yet they're the number one sellers because people know that this tequila was made by whomever, right? Whatever celebrity you support. And, and it really is a total branding play. And all the bottle designs and the labels and and all that. It's 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 as a marketer, that's one of the reasons why I like the tequila world so much because marketing and customer experience and all that's a big, big part of the success equation.
0: Oh, absolutely. I think that would probably, I would say that's probably true for a lot of the liquor brands, right? I mean, you walk through totally. the liquor store and you see all the bottles. My son, who's not even old enough to drink it, he recognizes that white tequila bottle, you know, he knows right away that that's a yes. premium. And-
1: yeah, class Azul is the white one. The yeah,
0: exactly. One. I mean, he taught me that. So speaking of branding, you know, I want to talk a little about your personal brand. You're not wearing it right now, but you always wear plaid jackets, And a flower lapel pin. So when when did you start wearing plaid and why? And can you tell me a bit about that?
1: As a keynote speaker, uh, I've done a thousand or something um, presentations in my career. And what's often the case, especially for bigger events, is you you do your speech. And then afterwards, people want to ask you questions. Uh, And maybe they want to ask you, hey, can you come give a presentation like that at my association or company? Which is even better. But when you're in a big event, and unfortunately, a lot of the events, at least historically, have been a heavier male uh, participation, a lot of people look the same, right? They're wearing a blue suit or a gray suit or uh, you know, a, a light blue dress shirt and slacks and brown shoes. It's, it's a pretty uniform vibe. And, and my observation was, well, geez, if I want people to be able to find me because I want to be able to have these follow up conversations after I leave the stage, shouldn't I make it easier to do so? And, and while I am a fairly large individual, it's not like I'm seven feet tall where it's going to be really easy to find me anyway. Uh, so I said, well, let's just try to do this um, with costuming, essentially. But I didn't want to wear a costume. So I said, OK, uh, I really like plaid anyway. And so I had a, a suit guy who makes um, some suits for me. And I'm like, well, instead of showing me the regular ones, do you have like some crazier ones, like some other fabrics? And he's like, yeah, but nobody ever orders them. I'm like, well, well, what if I did order them? He's like, do you think so? It's a little wild. I'm like, let me just try it. So I got my first two plaid suits and like overnight, every time I wore them, people could find me uh, later on in the conference. Everybody was commenting on what a cool suit. I really like it. And, And from that point, I knew I had thing. And so I just I added more and more and more over the time. So now I have 14 different plaid suits, different colors. And then where we really turned it on as a what I would call a talk trigger, a word of mouth device, is when I started to set it up so that meeting planners can pick out which suit I wear. So the way it works is that when you book me to give a present online or offline, you get a link to a special website and, and listeners can go there right now. It's dressjbear.com. You go to dressjbear.com And it's got all of the suits there, pictures of all the suits. And you pick which one you want me to wear. And then I've got it set up behind the scenes so it goes on my calendar. So if you pick out the green one on my calendar for the day that I give that talk, it says wear the green one so I know what to pack and how to dress uh, and all that. And then lapel lapel flowers I always wear with the suits, which are kind of contrasting colors. I just don't like pocket squares. I'm not good at folding them. And I always lose them. But the lapel flowers just stay on the jacket, um, and yeah. so I, I'm good to
0: It's funny you talk about pocket squares. My dad always wore a pocket square, you know, especially with a suit. I have a boyfriend, and when we went on our first date, I show up, and he's wearing a jacket with a pocket square. And you don't see that. You don't see a lot of people wearing pocket squares these days. But yeah, I, like- I love,
1: I love the look. It's just it's like a whole nother thing for me to pack and remember to on with them. Around. Lapel flower just stays in the lapel, and and even when you dry clean them, you can just leave them in there and it'll be fine. And that that just it takes one one thing off my uh, packing list.
0: And so do you have as many lapel pins as you do suits?
1: More, actually. Oh, yeah. I, I probably have 20 or so um, okay. lapel flops. Sometimes I change the color a little bit, depending on what I want to do.
0: That's great. Okay, so talking of suits, now we're, we're hopefully on our way out of the pandemic, but for the last two years and a bit, we've been in a pandemic and suits have been, power suits have been hoodies and sweatpants. And so how, is the, how has the pandemic affected your suit wearing? Because I assume you haven't been also- doing live events.
1: Not very many. I think I did six, seven um, in 2021, as opposed to 50 or 60. So a few, but not very many. So it's funny you say that because all the things that I own are actually suits, right? So they're not blazers. So I do have matching tops and bottoms, but since the pandemic, I've pretty much only wore the top. Right? So there's, <laughs> a, there's about a hundred webinars and virtual keynotes, uh, you know, recorded out there of me wearing a plaid jacket uh, and like underpants, right? <laughs> or like, or like, yeah. you know, slippers. Uh, yeah. So, so it is definitely a little bit of a mix and match a, at this point with with at I mean. home.
0: Yeah. Business on top and party on the bottom, as they say, absolutely.
1: right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I don't, either, I don't know if any of the pants fit anymore, actually. But the, you know, we'll see. Oh,
0: that's funny. I think they called it like the pandemic mullet because <laughs> like business up top and party on the bottom. So
1: so true. Yeah, absolutely. You- yeah, we'll, so- we'll see. I got to go back pretty soon. I've got several in-person presentations in the next month or two, so we'll see how coming
0: we'll see. up. Oh, that's great. Okay, so speaking of the pandemic, I read a famous quote where you said, and I, it's famous because you said it, that this is the single greatest opportunity you will likely ever have to grow your business. Can you elaborate on that? Well,
1: it's it really comes down to uh, consumer psychology. There is a recent report from Accenture. They came out, they did this big global study, and they talked to thousands and thousands of consumers. 50%, half of all consumers say that they have totally changed what they care about and their relationship with work and the whole world, right? Like this isn't just, you know, I've been thinking about making some different decisions. It's like, nope, I have fundamentally changed what I care about. Again, this is sort of the macro trend that powers the quote unquote great resignation and all these other uh, big things that are happening. And so what that means for business is that your customers now are thinking very, very differently about every category, about chiropractic and lawn care and buying a boat and furniture and real estate and whatever else it is that you might sell. Software, they used to make decisions based on one set of criteria. Now they're making decisions based on a different set of criteria. And what we're seeing in a very meaningful way is a lot of people jumping between brands so i used to always be loyal to this brand now i buy from this et cetera et cetera and why this is such a huge opportunity but also really scary is that customers now because of this fun how they see the world are much more likely to change brands or providers or businesses uh, in a way that they just wouldn't have bothered to change before the pandemic. So the good news is that your competitors' customers are much more likely to change to you than they ever were. The bad news is that your customers are probably just as likely to change to competitors. So market share is very much in flux right now in a way that really would have been unthinkable before the pandemic. And it's just because the pandemic caused everybody to sort of take stock about, well, what do I care about? What, Why am I here, right? It's a lot of big, deep questions that that then trickle down to you know, what kind of soda should I buy or whatever?
0: That's interesting. So, why do you think that is? I mean, you said that the pandemic has made people think there's no doubt everybody's questioning probably everything in their lives. Yeah. What do you think it is specifically about the pandemic? Do you think it's the fear factor? Yeah,
1: I think it's um, everybody, at least in the Western world, has, has had um, a pretty good run of it for the last many decades. And, and so, you sort of have this sense of security and, and some measure of prosperity. And, and then all of a sudden, everything gets called into question. Like, okay, well, yeah, I've got money and I've got a nice house and everything else. But if everybody can get sick and die anyway, then what's the point of all those things, right? And, and so it just changes sort of your priority list for a lot of people. And that then trickles down into how do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? What kind of brands do you support? Uh, et cetera.
0: Yeah, you see a lot of that. You know, another thing that I read, you said you talked about every business is a startup now, speaking about the pandemic, Mm -hmm. and it sort of plays on what you just said. So why is that? Why do you think that is?
1: Well, because customer attitudes have changed so much, you have to come at it as if your customers are all brand new or if your business is brand new. In fact, a really interesting report from Salesforce last fall found that I think it's 88% of brands have changed their content strategy since the pandemic. 88%. Wow. That's incredible. Like everybody. Um, And and so it's like, well, we we have to communicate to customers about different things in different places and in different ways in order to gain and keep their attention. Uh, And and so this idea that you can't really take your previous success for granted and you have to actually act like a startup again uh, is, again, a, a huge opportunity, but also really scary for a lot of people.
0: And, you know, one thing that I've talked a lot about with leaders is about purpose and brand purpose and how generations say the Gen Zers, which are becoming the biggest mm-hmm. consumers now, it's really important to them, right? Like when they're choosing a brand, cost isn't really as relevant as what's behind the brand and what the purpose yes. is.
1: Yep, not just them. It, it's its Certainly more prevalent with Gen Z, but not just them at all. That same Accenture study I mentioned, 44% of consumers, and I think this is US and UK, say that they would change banks if their bank didn't sort of believe the sort of same things that they believe, right? So if your bank is not aligned with your worldview, 44% of people would change banks. Now, I don't know when the last time it was you changed banks, but it is a pain in the neck. You don't want to change banks unless you've got to change banks. And 44% of people are like, you know what? If I'm not, if I don't believe in the sort of societal mission of this bank, yeah, I'll do it anyway. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Uh, that, that is not something that would have been true um, just a few years ago. And, and I actually wrote in my newsletter, which is called The Bare Facts, it comes out every two weeks, uh, thebearfacts.com. I just sent it last night, actually, to my subscribers. And it's funny, it's about that whole idea of having to have a mission, like taking a stand. So the history of marketing is one where you never wanted to purposely reduce the size of your addressable audience. It was, how can we appeal to the largest group of people and offend the fewest group, right? Because then you've got more potential customers. And now, I'm not sure that works anymore, right? So what I said in the newsletter is that broad is flawed, that now you almost have to say, look, I know I'm gonna piss some people off, but if I piss some people off, Some other people are going to be really delighted. And if they're more delighted than average, then I'll get more money, even though it's fewer people. And that kind of calculus is really interesting. And and I believe all companies are going to have to kind of do that math in their head at some point.
0: Well, I mean, I don't think you can be all things to all people anymore. Things are becoming a lot more niche where you really hone in on who your audience is and knowing exactly what they want and what their values are, and then having that relationship with them.
1: Absolutely. But it's so strange because I'm old enough to to have lived uh, a long time when that was not the case, right? That this, this, oh, this I know. you know, that trying to reach everybody was the strategy uh, yeah. and, and now it, it really isn't. And it's going to be fascinating to see what impact this has on legacy brands. Like, so, so new companies, uh, true startups, I think sometimes have an easier time basically you can say, "We're we're going to be the dryer sheet for this kind of person Uh, and and you can build a company to support that from scratch but if you're i don't know bounce or you know downy or something to be like oh we're going to be the dryer sheet for you know whatever it's it's this is why i i believe that in a lot of categories if you're a brand that is so broad like taco bell It's tough to be like Taco Bell is only for this kind of worldview because it's so big and so broad. It's hard to see how you could possibly start to narrow cast after being broadcast for so many years.
0: That's interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about more your experience. Would you consider yourself to be a customer experience expert?
1: Sure. Yeah. Customer experience and marketing are the two things that I work on the most. Yes.
0: Yeah. What is the coveted customer experience? Can you explain that to me?
1: The coveted customer experience is a concept that I created a couple of years ago, where uh, when you exceed customer expectations so consistently and so reliably, that price and perfection are not required. So if you're not the least expensive, it's okay. And if you make a mistake, and all brands do eventually, customers will give you another chance. That that's what all businesses should strive for to to deliver a coveted customer experience. Because what the coveted customer experience buys you is one of the most important things in business that we don't really talk about very much. It buys you the benefit of the doubt. The benefit of the doubt. Can I tell you a little story about that? How it happened? Yeah, of course. Before the pandemic, I was doing some speaking, I was going to Australia to do some presentations for Volkswagen in Australia. And my wife got to come with me. We were making a connection uh, on the flight. We were going from Indianapolis to LAX, LAX to Sydney, long day. So we're in LAX and we're getting ready to board the long flight uh, over to Australia. And we're getting on the plane and the flight attendant, a gate agent actually, scans my boarding pass, it looks in the little black magic box they have there. By the gate. Yeah, I don't know what's in that box, but they always look in this black box. Uh, and I think it talks about like what your seat is and who you are and how many miles you have or whatever, because she says, picks her head up, oh, Mr. Bear, thank you very much for your loyalty here on Delta. We appreciate your diamond status. Uh, please have a fantastic flight. But in those days, I flew so often, it wasn't like, wow, I can't imagine that they thanked me for my diamond status. It was like, yeah, nice, fine. But then she scans my wife's boarding pass boop, looks in the black magic box and presumably discovers that my wife has very few frequent flyer miles at all. Oh, oh no, wait, Mrs. Bear. Mrs. Bear, I'd like to thank you for what you must do at home to allow (laughs) Mrs. Bear to spend so much time with us here on Delta. So ma'am, in particular, I hope you have a spectacular flight. That's funny. Like, mind blower. We went down that jetway in tears. I'm not kidding because she completely nailed our relationship dynamic and we never expected to hear that. And as a result, is Delta always the least expensive? Definitely not, but I don't care. And if they make a mistake, which they do, we still fly Delta, right? That's the coveted customer experience. When you exceed expectations so much that it buys you the benefit of the doubt.
0: Customer service and customer experience is so much more important now than ever before because we have so yes. many choices.
1: Absolutely. Mathematically proven. Uh, not only the choices, but but just as we talked about earlier, people are more willing to change brands now. And it's not about price necessarily. It's not about, well, whoever's cheapest outside I'm going with, there's some of that for sure. Yeah. But a lot of it is, hey, I just want to work with whoever is the least amount of hassle.
0: Yeah. Make my life it's easier awesome. and better.
1: Yeah. Who's the easiest? And that's where customer experience uh, is so important.
0: Yeah. I thought it would have been funny if you would have stayed and I don't know if you were flying business class or if you were regular class and like, Mrs. Bear, you come with me. We're going to bring you up to business class and we'll leave him there and we're going to treat you. That would have been funny. What would you recommend for someone who is trying to exceed expectations, but because of situations out of their control are letting their customers down?
1: The key is not necessarily whether or not you're disappointing the customer. The key is to close what I call the uncertainty gap. The uncertainty gap is the distance between what you know about what's going on in your business and what your customers know about what's going on in your business. Now, you know all the reasons that things are delayed, the supply chain issues, et cetera. They don't. They're just like, where's my stuff? What you want to do is close that gap with information and education as much as you possibly can. You might think, oh, they don't care about the details. They totally care about the details. What drives me crazy is when I go to like an e-commerce site and I see an, a little um, message at the top that says, due to supply chain, it's going to take an extra 10 days to get your order. No. No. I don't that's not good enough. I need I want details and specifics. Here's what's going on. Here's the thing. Give me a little video from the CEO, give me a little letter from the CMO, whatever that explains with some detail what's actually going on because I'm like, "Oh, okay, I get it." Like I understand. But what a lot of people believe incorrectly is the customer doesn't care and we'll just we'll just apologize instead of explain. You're much better off explaining and if you explain correctly, you won't have to apologize as much.
0: Right. And I think, you know, it's interesting you say about a letter from the president or whatever. I think really just being transparent and also owning it. The worst thing you could do is try to throw someone else under the bus, right? And say, oh, it's not my fault. It's this. Let's just own it and say, this is what's going on and be transparent. Because ultimately, you know, we're going to talk about branding, but branding is about creating trust with your customers and knowing. So when you tell them that UPS only shipped three or four packages and the other ones lost, they believe you because you've already established that trust with them.
1: That's right. Yeah. And and you don't want to be like, and so, you know, send your complaints to UPS.
0: Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
1: Here's their number. Uh, You don't want to go down that road either, because as I talk to business leaders all the time about this, it's a fine line, right? Because they do want the explanation. They want to understand what the problem is, but they don't care about your org chart, right? So they want to know just enough so they get it, but not so much where they're like, look, I don't care what division or department or, you know, your partner, like just, like run your own business. So it's definitely a fine line. Uh, and sometimes you don't feel like you're chucking somebody under the bus, but that's how it's interpreted by the customer. And that almost never works.
0: So what are some other things would you say create that coveted customer experience? Yeah.
1: So there's three dimensions to the coveted customer experience. There's lots of things that you could try to do in your business to uh, offer a better customer experience. But so there's three things based on my research that your customers and my customers, everybody's customers cares about disproportionately. Okay. So three things that matter more than anything else. Your customers want you to be quick. They want you to be clear and they want you to be kind, quick, clear, kind. Those are the three most important elements. Uh, Quick is fairly self-evident. You know, nobody is saying, well, I've been thinking about it and it's okay if they get it to me more slowly. Like nobody ever says that, right? So, you know, everybody wants it to be faster. And here's a little tip on how to be faster that that most people mess this up. Answer, even if you don't have an answer. So here's what happens. People have a a question, a comment, or complaint. Maybe they got a question about where their thing is. Why is it late? You don't know off the top of your head. you got to go find out. You have to go do some research or talk to somebody else in the business or whatever to get it answered. So what happens almost every time, and it's so easy to fix this, it's like, oh, I don't know. So I have to go find out. And once I find out, I'll respond to that customer. Don't do that. What you want to do is say immediately, customer, great question. Such a good question. In fact, I don't know the answer off the top of my head, but I'm going to go find out. And as soon as I learn the answer, I'm going to reply back to you again. Because the whole time they've asked you and you're out there doing the research, they're like, did they get the question? Are they blowing me off? Do they not care about me? Once they get a reply from you, even if the reply is, I don't know yet, it goes off of their mental to-do list and reduces all kinds of friction and challenges and uh, mental anguish. And so the best thing you can do is answer even if you don't have the answer. And it's amazing to me how rarely that actually happens.
0: I love that you said that. I'm sitting here, just don't want to interrupt you, but I love that you said that because I can't tell you how many times where I will reply to an email or a phone call and I get, thank you for getting back to me so quickly. And I always think, as opposed to what? Because, but it's not, but you know what? It's my personality. It's not just with, my um clients or with business partners but it's personally too like I'm one of those people if you look at my phone there's zero texts in there I, I have to reply right away and people make fun of me because I can't just have it sit there right and because I think of it like you said if when I get a message from somebody or an email from somebody whether it's client or whoever and they ask me a question I'll just say I'm on it or I'll get back to you or I don't know let me look into it because when I send something, like you said, to, let's say, a supplier or something, and I don't hear back and 24 hours, I'll follow up and I'll go, did you get my email <laughs> or I'll phone? And I don't want my customer to do that to me.
1: <laughs> that probably totally freaks them out when you follow <laughs> up with them,
0: right? Well, my boss used to make fun of me because he's like, he knows, like, I always would email and follow up with a phone call. But, I, you know, and technology, as you and I have witnessed, it's so unreliable that you don't know. So just let me know, like, got it, on it, and it's good. So I love that you said that because yeah, I, all the time people, I get replies like, thank you. And I always think as opposed to what, like just waiting on it for a few days and letting you wonder what happened when and if I'm ignoring you. Yes.
1: Yeah, Do the whole time and wondering like if I, if I got it, did the email go through, did the internet eat it? Like, I don't know. Or and you're ignoring say, me. Right. Well, yeah, you know, maybe on purpose. And and then people say, <laughs> when I, when I talk about this in business, like, well, then I got to reply twice. I'm like, yeah. But the first one is like, I'll get back to you. It takes you four seconds to yeah. create that. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing so yes, it's twice, but it's really, really quick. The first one. So yeah, yeah. I, I keep talking about this concept and I hope that people start to actually put it into practice.
0: I agree with you. I think it's so important. I'll just say one thing on two. I saw this comedian once where he described sending an email or a text to somebody and then them not replying and whether it's a week or whatever, it's like walking up to someone and face to face. And he did this sort of skit where he walked up to someone, and goes, Hey, how are you? And the person just stood there and didn't reply. And he's just standing there and he's standing there and he's gonna reply. He goes, would you do that to a person in person? And I thought it was so funny. So I love that you share that. Okay, so let's talk about the other ones that are equally as yeah, important.
1: So, so that's quick, clear. We talked about a moment ago with the uncertainty gap, right? This idea that because of all the changes uh, in business and pandemic and supply chain and labor and blah, 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 all this stuff, uh, in most cases, customers know less about your operations than they have in a really long time. And, and so closing that uncertainty gap is really, really important. And sometimes um, it's just about being more, I don't know, higher volume of communication. I'll tell you a story about that. So. This guy, Wade Lombard, owns a moving company in Texas. It's called Square Cow Movers. And they're in Austin, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio. I think the big Texas cities. And they're a really good company. You know, even, uh, I think it's f- safe to say that not all moving companies are really good. Sometimes it's a little sketchy from a customer experience standpoint, right? But they're really good and he knows it. Uh, but despite being a good company, they were getting a bunch of customer complaints. And he's like, what? What are you talking about? I know we're a good business. How come people are complaining? Well, he did a smart thing. He analyzed the complaints, uh, looked at the, the telephone transcripts and emails and online reviews, and he discovered that a lot of the complaints weren't actually about moving, right? It wasn't like it broke my piano or whatever. It was, well, I didn't know I had to trim this branch on this tree so the truck could get in. And I didn't know my cat couldn't be there. and I didn't know what time the guys were showing up and all of this. Well, that seemed really confusing to Wade because he said, we already told them these things. When you book a move at Square Cow, you get a welcome kit in the mail that tells you a bunch of the stuff. And then a week out, you get an email with a bunch of the stuff. And then the night before you get a text message reminder with a bunch of the stuff. And he's like, what are you talking about? We already told them. But then he had an epiphany. He realized that 100% of his customers are moving. Nobody has ever said You know, when I was thinking my sharpest, when I was at my very best, was that week that I moved, right? Because you're a crazy person. You're totally stressed out. And so he realized that even though they were sending them this information, they were trying to close that uncertainty gap. Customers either were too busy to read it or just kind of scanned it and didn't think about it because they're moving. Did a smart thing. Called all the managers together. Said, all right, new plan. From now on, we double everything. So they do. Now they send a welcome kit, and then a week later, a slightly different one. They send one email, and then a slightly different one, and then a text message, and a slightly different one. They literally just doubled all the communication, and all the complaints went away. Wow. And I asked him, I said, all right, Wade, I love this idea, but doesn't that get annoying? You're probably thinking the same thing.
0: Well, I was actually thinking that, so I'm glad you said and that. here's
1: what he said, <laughs> word for word, and I never will forget this conversation, Jay, I've never had a customer say, please stop informing me so much.
0: Hmm. It's really? exactly right.
1: You know, as long as what you're sending is useful to the transaction at hand, no one's gonna complain. But what happens in practice, is people say, all right, yeah, let's send them some useful information, but then let's also try to upsell them to buy our you know, boxes or our packing tape or whatever. And they're trying to disguise the sales pitch with information instead of just making it information. That's where it goes wrong. So the second part of the coveted customer experience is clear. And this idea of closing down the uncertainty gap with information.
0: Interesting. I have to touch on that. This made me think of something and I'm curious to get your opinion. So, what do you think about places? I'll use hairdressers and restaurants, for example, when you make a reservation and then they send you an email to confirm and you get that email. And then the day before they call you to confirm. Do you find that's annoying or do you think that's good customer service?
1: I find it a little annoying. And yeah. I get this. Thing. Uh, here's why you should not channel shift your customers. I wrote about this in my book, Hug Your Haters. If a customer has told you, either through checking a box or you asked them or whatever, that they prefer text, you should not text and then also call. If they've said they prefer email, you shouldn't send an email and then also text. Like, Give them the opportunity to tell you what pref- what they prefer from a contact mechanism and then respect that choice. This idea that, like, well, maybe they didn't get their text message, so I should send them a phone call bro, it's the same device. It's not like email and call maybe, but you're getting your email on your phone now too. So th- this idea that somehow they would not get a text, but they'd get a call. Like in what world is that true? Yeah, the, 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 the voicemail would work, but the text message wouldn't. What are you talking about? You're just annoying people. So, So pick a horse and ride it is kind of my advice.
0: But what about if there's no box to tick? Like what if you made there? they don't ask right. you. And what if you just make you, that appointment?
1: Ask the great question, which is how come people don't have that box? And it's very small percentage of companies that do it. And it's one of my crusades is to <laughs> get people to start doing this. Like let the customer pick. If you don't have that technology or don't have it set up, you can certainly ask them in some cases, but I would still not... I would not shift it. I would I would decide as a business, look, we're going to be more comfortable with text. And actually, if I had to pick one, I would say text. I do a lot of work with Podium, which is a, a big provider of SMS software for businesses. And customers who will accept text from businesses almost invariably love it, right? Nobody's like, don't text me. What annoys people is the call. Yeah. That wouldn't have been the nobody case. Nobody likes
0: talking on the phone anymore. Nobody, especially,
1: especially young people, right? Yeah. Like, I've got a 20-year-old son and he won't talk on the phone at bayonet point. Like he wants (laughs) nothing to do with it. I know. When I started my career, I would get, no joke, 20, 30 calls a day. And these are not junk calls trying to sell me a car warranty. These are actual business calls. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and now, of course, I get like maybe one if it's a good day, right? It's all emails and texts and yeah. DMs and, and I got a lot of inboxes to check now, but it's totally changed and, and young people just don't understand it and they have no interest in using the telephone. Yeah. And yet a lot of people who run customer care, customer service and businesses are older. And so they still think that the whole world revolves around phone and even email, my kids don't check email I and they have email obviously, but they don't, they don't check email. Uh, my son's got like 5,000 unread emails and he's 20 years old. I'm like, what are all these emails? He's like, I don't know. I'm like, well, what if somebody needed to send you something important? It's like, I don't know. Yeah. You got know, to, you, you got to communicate to your customers using the technologies that they prefer, not the technologies that you prefer. And that I, happens all the time.
0: I love that. That's great advice. And then the third one,
1: Yes, it's quick, clear, and kind. This is not one that I that, that would have really made the list. I'm a seventh generation entrepreneur. My son has his own fashion business. He's an eighth generation entrepreneur. My family's been self-employed since the you know, early 1800s. Oh, and wow. the number of times that I had a conversation with my dad or my grandfather about treating customers with dignity and respect and kindness and empathy, literally never. Zero <laughs> times in my entire life. Because it was not a conversation that needed to be had. Like, I am old enough to remember a time when treating customers with dignity and kindness and respect and as if they're family, we just called that business. (laughs) There wasn't even a name for it, right? But somewhere along the way, we kind of lost our way. And, And now we find ourselves where we are here, which is in an era of empathy deficit in business, in life, certainly in politics. (laughs) Treating one another with kindness and respect and dignity and humanity is no longer the default state. And that makes me a little sad, frankly, as a human being. Uh, But as a business consultant, I will tell you it's an enormous opportunity because today, when you treat your customers disproportionately well, it stands out. Like they just they just don't get that treatment from anybody else. and it actually becomes a word of mouth fodder. It, it creates loyalty and revenue and everything else. So it is is an investment worth making. A little kindness will go a long, long way these days.
0: I love that. And I would take that one step further. I would say, and also your suppliers. When a customer says to me, thank you for making my life easier. Thank you for making me look good. The only way I can make them look good is because I have my suppliers have my back and they're doing whatever they can. And I think that's the thing too the reciprocity. And someone asked me this question once, like what my relationship is like with my suppliers. And it's just as strong as it is with my customers, because I look at it as like we're a team, right? And you can't be rude. I mean, I, if any of my suppliers are listening, they know I can be, Pretty firm. I'm just, I'm a very, I'm very blunt. I say what's on my mind, but sometimes I just get right to the point. That's my personality, but I'm always respectful and I always say please and thank you. And people just want to feel appreciated, right? When they do something for you. And I think it's a trickle down effect.
1: I couldn't agree more. This idea of treating your suppliers with that same kind of kindness and grace and generosity, you know, without them, what do you have? And I would say your team as well, right? Like your colleagues and team members and anybody else in your organization the coveted customer experience applies to them just as much because being quick, you know, so many times our ability to get something done in business is mitigated by somebody else in the company's getting to you what you need, right? Like I want to be able to help this customer, but I can't because Sheila in give me what I need, right? So yeah. so quick is sort of a mutual, we're all in this together kind of circumstance. Clear is the same way, right? Everybody needs to close the uncertainty gap, even between departments and team members. And kindness, as you said, uh, applies to everybody. So, you know, maybe it's optimistic, maybe it's anachronistic to say that empathy is a business strategy, but but I believe it to be true.
0: Mm-hmm. I totally agree with you. And you know, this is a great segue into branding, because I think that branding really starts internally, because you you talk about your employees and your team, when they go out there and speak highly of your brand, there's no better way to get your customers to trust you and fall in love with you and want to choose you first. So I'm curious to know what role do you think customer experience has in branding?
1: Like, Most of the role.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Most of the role?
1: If your brand isn't rooted in your customer experience, what is it rooted in? If the actual experience with your brand doesn't sync up with the brand, then the brand is just imaginary. It's just fake, right? Like, think about back in the day when Ford's kind of positioning line was quality is job one. Well, if quality isn't job one, then that's not a very good brand, right? That's just not a very good positioning, right? So the customer experience has to evoke the brand and the brand has to describe the customer experience because you can't fool customers, right? If you accept the premise that the brand is what the world thinks you are, not what you say you are. my One of my bosses years and years ago, when I used to work in an agency, used to make this point. He said, you can tell that Applebee's is not the neighborhood bar and grill because the sign says that they're the neighborhood bar oh. <laughs> and grill. Like, you know, if you yeah. got to have a sign, it's not. And, and it's so true, right? And I'm not anti-Applebee's, but from a positioning statement perspective, I think he's exactly correct about that. So what when I do customer experience and word of mouth strategy for companies, uh, which has huge brand impl- implications, what we always do is we say, okay, well, what what are people leaving reviews about? What do customers say about this business, right? Then how can we amplify that into a word of mouth device? And then how does that become sort of a brand and a brand position? So um, it, it all has to to work together because you can't say that you're a thing if that's not actually the thing that you are. I mean, you can, but it ain't gonna work very long.
0: Yeah. I wanna go back. You talked about Applebee's. It made me think of, you know, the movie Elf. Did you ever see the movie Elf? Remember when he goes in, he's like, congratulations, <laughs> world's best coffee. World's best coffee. <laughs>
1: I love that movie so much. It
0: oh, was... I know. My kids always do that. Whenever they see anything world's best, they're always like, congratulations. <laughs> so I still that's...
1: Eat gum off the rails. Uh,
0: <laughs> oh, that's so funny. You know, you talked about the customer experience and reviews. And I read something recently. Sometimes Gen Zs, and I'll use that demographics, are will be in the parking lot of a place. And before they go in, they'll read the review about it.
1: Yeah. And that's not like a weird edge case. That is from Podium. And I think it's like 40%, 35%. Like it's, it's a lot of people, uh, well, yeah. I've done it. I I'm not embarrassed to admit it. Right. You, you, you're like, okay. Like in
0: the parking lot. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah.
1: If you're driving by, you're like, oh yeah, maybe I do want, you know, chicken wings or whatever, but like, well, but is this worth me going in? Right. I'm not going to take a chance. Yeah. Why would I take a chance? It takes me 10 seconds to look it up. Right. Like yeah. why would I just wing it at the chicken wing place? Um, no pun intended. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so today, like, and I've said this before, If you make a bad decision today, you're just lazy, right? Like all the information necessary to make a better decision is available, like in your hand, right? Like there's ratings and and there's some categories, of course, where there's not ratings and reviews, but for a lot of categories, certainly your common consumer product categories in in consumer businesses, there's plenty of information out there to make a good buying decision. Um, So so if you're like, well, you know, I went and got my hair cut and it sucked that's your problem right you 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 should have done more research frankly so uh yeah and so it happens all the time and and the number of people that will now drive further to go to a business that has better reviews it's crazy it's like 63% or something like that like yeah, yeah. Well, it was an extra mile but this is 4.7 and these guys are 4.3 so here i go
0: oh yeah you know you talk about back to the brand and how they have to be quick and kind and what was the third one again sorry Please. Clear, right? (laughs) Sorry, I wasn't clear. It can backfire on them too, because we're living in this, you know, social media world. If a brand does something that pisses you off, you just go to Twitter and instead of telling your one friend before now, you're telling your 5,000 friends, right? So reviews are so important. And I think brands now more than ever really need to be transparent and make sure that they're um, doing what they say they're going to do.
1: And they're responding to reviews more too, but more. It's it's more common now for brands to answer reviews, which is definitely a best practice.
0: Yeah, definitely. You mentioned earlier about triggers and you just touched on it briefly, but I want to talk about, you have six books that you've written and all of them bestsellers. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Some more than others, depending on the category and the type of book, but yeah.
0: That's amazing. So I want to talk about Talk Triggers, which is one of your books. And in it, you say the key to activating customer chatter is the realization that same is lame. Nobody says, I love this. Nobody says, let me tell you about this perfectly adequate experience I had last night. The strategic operational differentiator is what gives customers something to tell a story about. I love that. So what are strategic operational differentiators?
1: Well, it's a choice that you make in your business that's designed to create conversation. So we talked about this earlier. For me, it's the plaid suits, right? The, the fact that that I can give a, a great speech, yeah, but that's what they're paying me to do. Like, that's not news, right? That That's not extra or unusual. Like, that's the business that I am in. But the fact that I do that and they get to pick out which suit I wear, like, oh, that's the thing that meeting planners tell stories about. So the, the the big awakening you have to have about word of mouth is that competency doesn't create conversation. Competency is really important, right? Competency is what keeps people from leaving, right? It keeps people from, from departing for your competitors. But competency is not a storytelling engine. If I went over and flicked the switch and the lights came on, I wouldn't be like, whoa, you wouldn't believe what happened when I flicked this switch, because we all know that's how electricity works, If you want your customers to tell stories about you and you do, you've got to give them a story to tell. And that story is never the thing that you actually do because they know you do that, right? That's not story worthy. We tell stories about things that are different. That's just how humans are wired. So you've got to give them something different. So one of the best examples in that book, Talk Triggers, is um, Doubletree Hotels. So for 30 years Doubletree Hotel gives every guest a warm chocolate chip cookie when they check in and they have an oven in the hotel, right? So it's just like a pile of cookies on the counter. They give you a warm cookie and it's like, and you can smell it. It's in a uh, paper bag. It's like a whole ritual. We did a bunch of research on that for the book and and found that 35%, I think, of the Doubletree customers have told a story about the cookie, not about the pillows, Hmm. not about the elevator, not about the pool but about a cookie. Now, pre-pandemic, they were doing 75,000 cookies a day worldwide. 35% of those people talked about those cookies, okay? So that's like 27,000 conversations a day about a cookie. Now, why does that matter? Well, here's why it matters. Doubletree spends less per dollar earned on marketing and advertising than any other hotel chain in America. Oh, wow. How? Because the cookie is the ad. guests are the marketing department.
0: That's amazing. I love that story. I didn't know that. I had, a, I went somewhere recently where they gave me a cookie. I don't know if it was warm or not, but I remember it. See, right? Right. Yeah. yeah
1: there's lots of examples like Cheesecake Factory having like the biggest menu ever. Like they make all the foods. Like that's the thing that people talk about, about Cheesecake Factory. Lots of businesses have these puck triggers and mine is the plant suits. If you know what people expect you also know what they don't expect. And the talk trigger always has to be something they don't expect. You don't expect to get a warm chocolate chip cookie. You don't expect to get to pick out the suit, right? If it's something you expect, then you don't talk about it because you're like, yeah, that's that's like a light switch, right? So it's, it's really important to kind of do that research first yeah. and not just sit down yeah. with pizza and beer like, what would be fun?
0: Well, I I think we've kind of gone for a circle because it reminds me of the woman at the airline Delta when she said to your wife, like, oh, you know, you are special for us, right? Who expected that?
1: Yes. Um, The the one challenge about that is typically talk triggers you want to operationalize so that it happens every time to every customer. Yeah. It's not just a one-off. So that idea is excellent as a talk trigger. It's just that one's a little difficult to sort of say, all right, this is going to be kind of how we go about our business, right?
0: Okay, I have something for you though. So if you say, you know, you want it to be unexpected and then you go and what if you're, you, obviously your goal is to have repeat customers come back again and again. So you've gone the first time, you've been surprised and you didn't expect it. What happens if now you go back and you're expecting the unexpected and you don't get it and you're like, well, wait a minute, what, right. what, what's your say on that? Oh,
1: yeah, 100%. And that's why it's dangerous to only do it every once in a while or to only do it for your best customers, or your biggest customers. Because especially in a social media age, like this happens in hotels a lot. Some guy checks into the Fairmount, right? Or whatever, bam, for something, right? And there's like a a fruit basket or something on his table, like, welcome. Uh, And so then he puts it in social media, like, wow, thanks so much for the strawberries, right? And then everybody else is like, hey, man, where's my strawberries? you you're making one customer really happy and a bunch more customers kind of unhappy right so i don't love what we call in the business surprise and delight i don't love that as a marketing strategy because i feel like you are by definition treating customers unequally and i think that can can cause some friction actually
0: so how do you get away how do you get around that
1: well, you do it the way Doubletree does it, right? Every person who checks in gets the warm chocolate chip cookie. It's yeah. not just if you're in a membership program or if you just have a suite or if you're there for four nights or whatever, right? It's yeah. everybody on, right? So it's just part of the shtick. If it's about every transaction, then you're not treating people um, with different
0: levels. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Well, Jay, it's been so nice talking to you. I'm just looking at the time here and it's gone by so quickly, but I really appreciate you taking the time to-
1: My pleasure. I've really enjoyed it. It's lots of fun, great questions. Uh, what a terrific show. It was my, my pleasure to be here.
0: Oh, you're so sweet. Well, thank you. So if people want to learn more about you and about your plaid suits, <laughs> what's the best way for them to connect with you? Are you on social media?
1: <laughs> social media, of course, JBear, B-A-E-R, everywhere. The TheBearFacts.com is the newsletter. That's the best place to get my, my stuff. And if you want to pick out the suit, DressJBear.com.
0: Okay. Well, thank you again. I'm really happy to be connected with you. So we will stay in touch, I hope.
1: Anytime. I hope so.
0: Okay. Thanks. Bye. <music> And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and maybe learned a few things to help you with your branding. But most of all, I hope you had some fun. This show is a work in progress, so please remember to rate and review on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. And if you want to learn more about me and what I do to help my clients with their branding, feel free to reach out to me on any of the social channels under, you guessed it, Branding Badass. Branding Matters was produced, edited, and hosted by Jolie Goodson, also me. So thanks again, and until next time, here's to all you badasses out there.